Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. So we continue in week two of a sermon series that I'm entitling The Pilgrim's Way. And it's really built out of where we started with Faith Renewal Sunday. When we talked about in baptism, we are a new creation. I'm not asking you if you feel like a new creation. I'm not asking if it feels like you're a new creation today. What the Word of God says is that you are a new creation and that is where our faith is going to begin. And so last week we talked about prayer as one of the first ways that we start to discover what being a new creation means. And we've discovered that prayer is not about getting God to do what you think God ought to do. Prayer is about <laughs> prayer is about it's about being spiritually formed. There it is. These words will come to me eventually. It's about being formed in the image of God, discovering what God has already done. And so much of it is about chipping away all the old stuff that is sort of lingering around this new creation so that the new creation emerges out and we become all that God has called us to be. And then our conviction, our, at least the thesis we're working with for a little while, is that the Psalms are our best tool, maybe not our only tool, but they are our best tool for learning how to pray. And we said that we need tools for all kinds of things because we are humans. And tools that are made of words are no less tools than tools made of wood or metal. And so we are going to use the Psalms as tools to help us figure out what it means to pray. And last week we said that Psalms 1 and 2 are not necessarily the first prayers that we are called to pray. They are there to orient us to what the walk of prayer is going to look like. We said they are sort of a trailhead, if you will, to the, if you will, to the path of prayer. And they teach us meditation. Remember, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord is like the, like the tree who is planted by streams of water. And we learned adoration. Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we learn that praise of God is sort of what it means to be this new creation. And so as we set out on this journey, we're like, okay, Psalms 1 and 2 got me pointed in the right direction. It started telling us, you know, blessed is the person who walks not. It's always looking about blessedness. We're ready to go. God's going to take care of my enemy. So what's the first prayer? What's the first psalm we've dialed up to do? And the first prayer, which we read this morning, Jenny read is, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Wait, 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 wait. Slow up. That's not where I want my prayers to start. Many are rising against me. Many are saying there is no help for you in God. We wanted a faith that was just going to leave us in the pillowy soft stuff of popular culture. What we have are the Psalms. The Psalms are not going to break us in easy. Now, many of you who have grown up in the church and been around the church and have heard the scriptures read time and time again, you know that this kind of language, this sort of faux language, this kind of almost a fear language, is not unique to Psalm 3 itself. And it's spread throughout the Psalms, and indeed, it's throughout the scriptures. So this is not a weird psalm. There's a lot of it that's actually, this is kind of par for the course in so many ways. This is part of the experience. And this is the first prayer that the people who organized the scripture said, this is the first one we actually want you to pray. 
So we need to come to terms with the language that is very difficult in Psalm 3. If prayer is a tool that is shaped by words, then we need to understand how these words that we've been given work. And indeed, it takes us to a tough place immediately. But when it takes us to that difficult place, friends, hear this. It is seeking to unlock something powerful in us that is essential at the beginning of prayer. It is seeking to teach us something that we've... It's roughly equivalent to teaching your children how to do basic math. Learn your times tables. Because if you don't learn the times tables, algebra is going to be a real bear. But if you learn these tables... You can figure out some of the more difficult stuff. Today is the times tables for prayer. We're going to look a little bit about language and how language functions. Now, granted, for many of us, language is almost as big a mystery as prayer is. But it's so important as believers, for people who say that we are committed to the word of God, it is important that we have sort of a rudimentary understanding of what language is trying to do because it is one of the keys of being a human. And so today I want to break it down quickly into three basic categories of how language functions. And some of you are already going to sleep. Stay with me. I'm going to blow through two of them really fast. Because there are two that are familiar to us and they're really well practiced. The first that we use all the time is the language of information. And as we grow up, and I'm looking, I'm seeing a lot of kids this morning. As I'm looking, and as, as we grow up, as our children grow up, we discover a world that we've got to sort out. We've got to put names to things, right? Our experience of discovery is the same experience that Adam had. When Adam is raised from the dust of the ground, looks around and going, what is, what is going on? And the first thing Adam does is start naming everything, trying to make sense of the world that is around him. And that's what the language of information does. Even as we grow into adulthood, we learn to name things, we name ideas, we name emotions, we name events. And indeed, our news and information technologies, to the point that they actually engage in the language of information, and they don't always, but when they do, they do a lot of this work in the world. We turn on the news because we want information. We read a newspaper because we want information. Sometimes we even go to our social media feeds because we just want information. What are my grandkids doing? We just want info. And the next kind of language is the language of motivation. This might feel a little more faithy to us because it's the language that often gets used in churches. But we discover this one very early on too. We discover early that language has the power to make things happen. Language can create. A child in the middle of the night will scream until it gets fed. And we start to learn, oh, the longer I scream, the more likely it is that mommy's coming and giving me something to drink. A child begs grandma for ice cream. Y'all are laughing under those masks because you know. They beg and beg and beg and eventually grandma whips out the wallet. Before you know it, you're you're dripping vanilla down your shirt. It's a wonderful thing. But language creates this reality that you didn't have before. We also know that politicians bellowing produces votes. A coach talks up their players and gets another two or three miles on a fastball that maybe they didn't have the last inning. Even preachers put out the call to do this, that, or the other thing. We're used to the language of motivation. And this is the language that motivates people. It's creative. And here's the thing. Information and motivation are both languages of faith. 
Yes, we need both of them. But our culture has privileged these two kinds of information that oftentimes our prayers are only one or the other or some odd mix of the two. Sometimes it's just seeking information or giving information. We just tell God what's up or we go like, all right, God, tell me what I'm supposed to do today. Or we go trying to get God to do something or expecting that God is going to try to get us to do something. Both of these kinds of languages are important, but if that's all that our prayers are, we often find ourselves running up against the shore saying, well, I don't understand God any better. How come I haven't learned anything? We're seeking information. Or I just don't feel all that motivated today. If we're not careful, it will emaciate our prayers. Because prayer is not about information about God or motivating God. Prayer is about an experience, a relationship with God. And that is different. To know about someone is different than to know them. And God doesn't want us just to know about God. God wants us to know God. Prayer is about being spiritually formed. It's about creating a relationship. And what we desperately need as churches in the 21st century are churches that will pray in this final category of language, which is intimacy and relationship. Indeed, it is the first language that we learn. It is our most human. It is the language that is closest to our being. And we see it in the nonsense speech of a parent and a child. You all know when you've held a baby in your arms and you make all these weird sounds that if you did it to your adult friends, they'd all look at you really funny. But when you're talking to a baby, this, these nonsense syllables that we make are really, really critical to building relationship with God's newest person. It's incredibly rich in meaning. It builds trust. It builds bonds. It's sharing. It has no dictionary value, but it's essential to who we are. After we put some legs underneath of us, that kind of language sort of disappears for a time. I'm looking at my own kids going, there was a time when that kind of language was cool and I've got a teenager in the house now. It's not quite as cool, especially not in public. That's fair. But And it reemerges in our teens, doesn't it? As we fall in love for the first time, right? If you've ever listened to a teen trying to figure out a relationship on the phone, you're like, dude, what in the world are you talking about? But that language isn't for you. It's okay. They're talking gibberish, but it's hardly gibberish in the context of a relationship. They're practicing adoration. Awkwardly, sometimes really humorously, sometimes not always healthily, but we practice adoration. We practice building deep relationships one with another. Sometimes this kind of language also, it's not all beautiful. Sometimes it comes out as harsh, difficult language in a marriage. Any of us who have been married for any length of time know there are times that the deepest, most profound thing we can do is just to scream. There's no judgment here for that. It can also be found in the handshakes, gestures, and eye glances of best friends. You know how it goes. Like you just look at your friend and you've just had a whole conversation. Yeah, that's part of, that's the language of intimacy and relationship. The problem is, in our culture, we're not rewarded for this kind of language. Our economy and our political structures don't benefit from that kind of deep relationship. We benefit from information language. We benefit from motivation language. But our structures are set up so that we don't really benefit from relationships. Yes, it's okay if our workers get along. But at the end of the day, do we really care? We just want you to do a job. So we don't benefit from this. And so we don't practice this kind of language all that often. 
Maybe, maybe we reacquire this language at death. I was privileged that my grandfather, who never hugged a person in his life, discovered how powerful a hug is right before he died from brain cancer. Sometimes we, re- we rediscover the language, but it's hard because it's unpracticed. But it is our most human language because it requires vulnerability. It requires us peeling back the layers of culture and the layers of shame and the layers of wanting to hide ourselves. It requires us to be open and honest with somebody else. Now again, all three kinds of language, information, motivation, and relationship, all three are important to the life of faith. But if we don't root information language and motivation language in the language of adoration and relationship, then what happens is our prayer lists degrade into list making or crass manipulations. Our prayers aren't successful. And so relationship language is the language of prayer and the language of the Psalms. Written and prayed so that we might know God and that we might know ourselves. Why? Because God is love. God is not information. And God is not this great motivator. God is love. And so we must pray in the language of love if we are to learn, if we are to discover who God is. So we've got to let the Psalms help us reclaim this language, the language of I and thou, the language of personal love, the language of vulnerability. But it will take some courage to pray with that kind of vulnerability because it exposes us. We've got to be honest and truthful, and sometimes that reality is not always easy, which is what Psalm 3 is all about. How many are my foes? While connecting to emotional language, we might not want to start in trouble. We'd rather start in the ooey-gooey, teenager-y kind of stuff of, oh, Lord, I love you so much, and hearing God say, oh, I love you too so much. Actually, trouble is one of the best ways we have to connect with the language of our emotions. It's one of the first places that we actually discover what we feel. And we enter into the trouble of our lives. Psalm, the psalm calls us, says, don't be afraid to say out loud what's going on. And immediately it takes us to this place where we have to be vulnerable, intimate, and honest with somebody else about what we're actually feeling. So how many are my foes is about saying, I'm not in a great spot here, God. That's the first prayer the Psalms ask us to pray. And how is that met? Does God look back and say, well, you know what? Get your act together, son. Does God look back and say, you know what? Just try harder. No. God answers, and this prayer turns into a prayer of trust. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. One can imagine God, and remember last week we talked about using imagination. One can imagine God just putting God's hand against your face and lifting your head. Quit quit navel-gazing. Don't look at your belly button. You are my beloved child. Look up. One might imagine this is the prayer of the person who comes home from a really tough day, just screams the problem into the void, and then receives a hug, and as they do so, just lets the tears roll down. It is the prayer of real life, the prayer of love. And it is the prayer of the person who is honest about their situation and honest about the God to whom they cry. It is deeply authentic. And so my question for you, friends, is what do your prayers sound like? Because the good news is is that the psalm tells us God is a shield. You're safe. You're going to be okay. 
It's hard now, but God is a shield. It tells us that God heard, that God listens to us when we pray, when we do these, these guttural screams that are the best we can come out with. God's response to our pain is relationship and love. And so are our prayers offer that back to God, or is it still kind of in the, I'm just going to name off the issues and get out of here as quickly as possible? So it's worthwhile for us to think about what our prayers sound like. Because once we speak the truth and lean into the love of God, we might dare to use, we might allow our language to develop a little bit, use a slightly different kind of language. And what, and grammarians will appreciate this, I hope my former teachers will appreciate that I understand what this is, but it moves into what's called the imperative. And nobody cares what the imperative, except that imperative, when used in language, is the verb in its, in its most purest form. It's like, God, we do want you to do something. The prayer of trust moves into a prayer of God. Can you fix this? God, are you present? Can you work on this? It is also a confession of inadequacy, saying, God, you've got to do this because I can't fix my own situation. Imperatives call to, for God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And this is where this language gets really harsh. Because the advice that the prayer gives in Psalm 3 is not great advice, but it is honest advice. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Yikes. Our advice for God is often really poor. These words are brutal. And what they ask is beyond what we, can, what we would consider virtue. Yes? If you walk out of here and say, well, the Bible says I can break my, break my enemy's jaw. No, you're doing it wrong. That's not what this is about. But it's okay to say these words because there's a recognition in our prayers. Because God is love, because God is connected deeply with us, we allow God to be fierce. And God allows us to have some feelings that go a little sideways. But the first requirement of language is not to make us nice. It is not to pacify us. It is not to take everything away from us. Rather, it is to make us accurate, to tell the truth. There is a recognition that we have got to share with God what is actually going on. And I think we get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we refuse to dip into our actual emotions in prayer. Even anger is the prayer of relationship. Do you know how many times I've sat at the bedside of someone who is dying and wanted to say words that are very unbecoming for a reverend if you understand where I'm going? Why? Because I hate cancer. Because I hate human suffering. Because it breaks my heart when there is a, per a beautiful human being that you can't do anything for. It's okay. That God breaks teeth and slaps cheek isn't theological dogma. We're not saying God is a brawler. We're not saying something definitive about God in this prayer. We're using metaphor, this image, to connect to our own experience, our own pain, and yes, even some notion of hope. Psalm language is not, care is not careful about offending our sensibilities. Commentator writes, its genius is its complete disclosure of the human spirit as it makes response to the revealing God. Given the mess that unpleasant matters have to be spoken and spoken in the language of our sin-conditioned humanity, for the language of prayer is most emphatically human language. Prayer is not angel talk. So we've got to say what we mean. We've got to say what we feel. 
And when we refuse to do that, to let our emotions and our affections, our deepest self into prayer, we'll always find prayer to be a little thin, a little meaningless, not quite getting us into the growth that we might have anticipated. I would suggest this is what Jesus refers to when he says what comes out of us defiles us. One of the ways that we defile ourselves is that we tell untruths about ourselves to God and one another. We cover it over. We don't say what's actually going on. And slowly and surely that disconnects us from the true self that is inside so that we have an image of ourselves on one hand when God is trying to do something different with us on another and we never actually said what's actually defiled when we don't tell the truth. But when we come with our deepest self, our most authentic self, the self that sometimes can't be described, that sometimes is scary to us, we find that God is waiting, already having entered that space. God's already there, and that's when God does the work. Intimacy doesn't tear us up and change things. Intimacy invites us to be exposed and to trust God and to discover God and to discover ourselves. That can only be done when we're honest. That's the work of prayer. And so it's important and instructive for us that the the pounding of cheeks and the breaking of teeth is not where this psalm ends. There are other psalms that will end that way, but not this one. This one says, deliverance belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Fortunately for the prayer, there's a course correction. Opened up discovered some stuff inside that was a little unsightly and then said, wait a second, let's get back on track here. We discovered that there's something more real about us than our anger. There's something more real about us than the trouble we have. The thing that's most true about us is that God is good. God is good. God is big enough to hear us as we actually are. God knows that we're not yet what we shall be. It's okay. And so he says, come to me. I want to get to know you, not the you that you want to show me. And when we show up authentically, we discover that gratitude and well-being are as easily and spontaneously expressed as fear and anger. As quickly as we hear about breaking teeth, so the, the prayer says, deliverance belongs to the Lord. It turns into a prayer of blessing just as quickly as the anger and the hatred came up. God is big enough for it all, friends. God is big enough for your prayers. And so let us pray in the language, not just of information, not just in the language of motivation. May we pray in the language of intimacy because all of it is good enough for God. All of it is good enough material to form us. All of it is good enough to chip away all that is, all that resides in us to expose the new creation that God would have us to be. And it's only there as we are exposed to God and God's love do we discover who we indeed are.